Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back to the warrior. We haven't done this in a while. This is what we call a flashback Friday. If you've been following along on LinkedIn or on our YouTube channel, then you no doubt have seen our quarterly podcasters roundtables, which we produce in conjunction with our friend Mike Casey and the team at Tiger.com. Every quarter we convene our friends in the podcasting sector who are covering clean tech in the front lines of the climate tech industry in an effort to bring you insight into what not only these brilliant clean tech podcasters are themselves thinking, but what they're hearing in their respective podcasts. We've got a new friend, Gil Jenkins, who joins us this week from Hannon Armstrong. I hope that you will enjoy this. I hope that you've subscribed to Suncast and that's how you're being notified of this. But if you're joining because you were shared this episode by one of our podcasters, I would like to invite you to consider subscribing to Suncast if you would like insight into the leadership lifestyle and insights that it takes to create and grow clean energy companies and the economy. You'll get more than 450 additional founder stories and startup advice just like this. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. We're going to tune into our Q1 2022 Podcasters Roundtable here on Suncast. Hello, clean techers. I'm Mike Casey, the founder of Tigercom, the national clean economy Marcom and public affairs firm. I have the honor today of hosting the fourth convening of some of clean tech's leading podcast hosts. As many of you know, we also host a quarterly clean tech editors roundtable series. Uh, we're convening our sixth episode in a few weeks, and we'll have something up on LinkedIn about that soon. But as we like to know, while the full-time editors have a breadth of view, I think you're going to find our podcaster panelists have a depth of view because their shows delve into deeply into companies, leaders, and trends. I'm going to have a, the panelists introduce themselves in alphabetical order and then go right to a few questions. I just want to note that we're missing one of our regulars, Bill Nussie of Freeing Energy, but we have um, Gil Jenkins of the Climate Positive Podcast who agreed to pinch hit for Bill on short notice, and we're delighted to have um, Gil with us here. So, Marie, let's start with you on introductions. Hi, everybody. Marie Berkowitz here. I am with the What's Up podcast that focuses on renewable energy and sustainability. Gil? Hi, uh, Gil Jenkins here. I'm a co-host of the Climate Positive Podcast, where we try to have candid conversations with leaders, innovators, and changemakers focused on driving a sustainable future. So I've been podcasting uh, for about a year. I have two other great co-hosts, Chad Reed and, and Hillary Langer. And in my day job, I lead communications and public affairs for Hannon Armstrong, and we're a, a climate investment firm. Great. <clears throat> Mr. Johnson. Hey, everybody. Nico Johnson with Suncast Podcast. We just recently published our 450-something episode. We've been around for a little while interviewing uh, clean tech leaders, founders, and C-suite executives, basically chronicling the journey 
of how the solar and broader clean tech industry is growing. And it's been such a joy to co-produce this podcast roundtable with you, Mike, and uh, look forward to yet another, uh, what I'm sure will be fun and gripping discussion. Now we have the other half of the uh, Illinois Mafia, a guy named Tim Montague. Tim. <laughs> Good to be here, Tim Montague with the Clean Power Hour, speeding the energy transition with news and information and interviews on the clean energy transition. We cover everything, solar, wind, and energy storage. Good to be here, Mike. Great. And uh, last but certainly not least, our uh, perpetual background contest <laughs> winner, ringer, Josh Porter. Aloha, Josh. Hello, everybody. Uh, so good to see you all. Um, happy to be here with uh, Tigercom and on this fourth roundtable. I didn't realize it was four, right? It's amazing. We've done this so many times now. So yeah, really fun stuff. We are a um, radio show podcast. We've recently moved into kind of short films. Uh, this is Span up here. Of course, congrats to everybody at Span for their Series B $90 million uh, raise. Uh, they're doing amazing things and we'll be installing the Span system on my home here in Makawao in two weeks. So keep your eyes out for that videography. It's going to be awesome stuff. Okay. Well, since we last convened, there was just this little, small, tiny development in case you hadn't noticed a, uh, a certain guy running a certain country decided he liked another country better than his, and he caught a, kind of caused a problem. So, of course, uh, I just want to ask all of you, topic on everybody's minds, how will Russia's invasion of Ukraine change the picture for clean tech sectors? Nico, let me start with you. I think the, the narrative right now around getting folks away from gas generally is speeding the electrification of everything conversation, the transition to electrify everything. And the conversations that I've been having on the podcast suggest that the the electrification of large fleets, so munis, um, even corporate fleets, is something that has been just sort of sitting on the bubble and it's tip it's tipping over to the right now because they because folks realize that not only home electrification, which things like induction stoves and um, and even geothermal heating are going to become increasingly super popular in Europe. But the, the things that we can do to get away from importing natural gas and even petrochemical or you know, fossil fuel um, gasoline-based derivatives is, is going to be a big driver. So I'm seeing a lot of conversation around electrification of fleets, in particular, like the short-haul the short fleets, drayage and, and the like around ports. And, uh, you know, the conversation in clean tech that that everyone is watching is kind of how hydrogen is going to play a role and if we can green the hydrogen uh the hydrogen transportation sector or like the hydrogen not transportation sorry but the hydrogen supply chain so to speak if we can green that as a as a input to hard to abate products like steel um i think that it's just gonna it's really gonna accelerate that conversation how about you marie yeah, I want to agree with exactly everything that Nico said. Um, and just the overall acceleration of everything is just going to be gangbusters now. And I really think it brings more and more and more of a bipartisan light to why why this is all necessary and why these um, big goals need to find a pathway on how we can get them accomplished. Tim? Well... <laughs> Unfortunately, more expensive energy is good for the clean energy transition. So the crisis in Ukraine will 
of course, encourage the Europeans to speed the energy transition, we have to remember that their footprint, their carbon footprint is already half of what ours is here in the U.S. We are the global carbon hogs. And, you know, they're 10 years ahead of us in terms of creating a more efficient built environment, adopting electrification of transportation, planning for the hydrogen economy. And and so uh, it is a double edge because the fossil fuel industry is going to capitalize on this crisis as well. And so it's a both and, but ultimately it is a good thing for the energy transition. All right, Josh, because uh, at Gil's request, we're saving him for last. So uh, yeah, sure. Josh. Uh, two things. I think hydrogen certainly is is something we should talk about. And then, of course, microgrids and the electrification of everything in that kind of space. And then if you, there's what, what comes to mind is um, never waste a good crisis. Right. And that's a bit of an impersonal thing to say. But we're in a moment in time. You remember Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine? Remember that she yes. would portray, um, you know, kind of conservative movements of taking advantage of disasters in order to po- advance policy in a way and at a rate and a pace and a you know speed that is just uncommon in democracies. Right. So it, I, when I tend to think about this, I, I think about the fact that we all in this in this world of of clean tech analysis, we kind of believe that climate change, we have the tools in our tools box to meet climate change. However, humans, our brains, our way of interacting as society can't quite seem to implement those tools because we're disagreeing and we're arguing. We're doing all the human things we typically do. So there's a there's this can kind of catalyze policy, which is the problem and administration and people's decision making. And I think that's happening. I see it in the news, you know, every day as we kind of scan for our news and events section. I mean, you have on the hydrogen side, you have a nations, nations like Finland making huge commitments, right? That's just in the last week or so talking about multi gigawatt commitments to green hydrogen. You have it in the UK, you have it a, a trio of Southwestern states domestically doing the same type of thing. They're making commitments. And it starts with these kind of commitments and these, these, these mandates that they will self-impose mandates that they're going to try to meet, right? But then on the other side of the fence, you actually have the business that's being established. So we just did another show with Enphase founder, Raghu Balor, a remarkable guy. And he's talking right now, he just partnered up with a, a microgrid company in, I think, Spain. And they're, they have their targets. This company, it's got this weird name, like you can't pronounce it, like Elon Musk's kid's name, right? The, the, the name of this company, One Kratom 8 or something like that. But th- that company, they have a goal of like 1.5 million building retrofits for solar EV, uh, I want to say load control, probably like span and then stuff and then uh, heat exchanging, which is relevant to the, the whole thermal conversation. Of course, geotherms a piece of that puzzle too. So you got, I mean, this is movement folks, this is movement. And, you know, dare I say it, you know, this guy's a terrible person, but Hey, thanks Putin. Thanks for helping us figure it out. You know, now we're all stoked and moving towards, uh, you know, this new, new energy economy. I mean, that's the way I look at it. What do you think, Gil? Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's hard to say how has it changed the pic- picture for any particular clean tech sector, but it's certainly changed. I mean, the world has changed and it changed. It's a month now since the invasion and you know, two weeks of plus of the energy spike in the crisis and paradigms are changing. And, and you know, I found we're all finding ourselves, uh, however we all want to date ourselves. Remember those energy security and national security talking points? Turns out clean energy has a pretty good story there too. We always have, and we better be uh, in that fight and continuing to make those points in all of our in all of our conversations with all of our stakeholders. My hope too um, would be, and this is 
you know, I was something like 40% in, in the last month and more internet searches for electric vehicles. Uh, I'm excited that I'm having my next electric vehicle. My second is being built right now by Ford. I, I can't wait. I did that months ago. You may want an electric vehicle right now, but you can't get it. You can't get any car. So it's, it's a little bit disappointing that this does feel like a big moment for electric vehicles in particular with rising gas prices, but we're still got these real supply chain constraints. I do think this will create a lasting memory though and bring about faster change, particularly on uh, electrification of, of transportation. But perhaps above all, in terms of the thing that I think has changed the picture for the positive in the near term is this may be what unlocks the momentum we need to get uh, climate and clean energy tax package across the finish line in the next month. And everyone on this call knows how important those incentives are to meet the accelerated timeline on wind and solar and storage in particular uh, to have any shot at Paris. So I think we all need to be clear eyed uh, and open some some of these discussions about all of the above. Also a throwback set of talking points because, you know, there's a focus on these issues and and point was made, never let a crisis go to waste. I think it was Bobby Kennedy who said that these next two to three months in terms of what this does to shape the policy we need along with the technology and the consumer adoption that's going to be a part of this is critical. I'll throw in a thought here. I guess now that I'm two episodes into our own podcast, I get to offer some opinions along with your alls instead of just seeking yours out, although I think yours are better most of the time. So I'll say this. I think clean economy is going to have a moment of opportunity, and we're going to see how ready we are to seize on it from a public case-making standpoint. And I'll tell you why. Because the incumbent sectors have had decades to build up the infrastructure, the alliances to deliver narratives at certain, without on short notice, let's, let's say. And we have it. Like our public case making infrastructure is nascent. That's a generous description. Uh, if you're going to put it, if you're going to put it up against our opponents, it's kind of surprising we've gotten as far as we have without getting our heads squashed. And I think that you're going to. It, what's going to be interesting is to see in a year or two was there a surge in LNG terminal buildouts? Was there a surge in fracking permits? Was there a surge in pipeline permits or new or, or, or expand uh, permits for expansion or new builds? Because it's not at all clear to me that we have graduated from Bill McKibben, right? God bless him, but he's making our case out there as an environmentalist. We're not making our case as an industry that we didn't cause energy energy insecurity, and that's kind of the the, the talking point right now. And I think that's going to be a real telling moment here. I, I was telling somebody yesterday that the story of the Trump years was that we emerged with commercial drivers being far more important than policy drivers. I think that's a good thing. But that was true in part because Trump's crew was the gang that couldn't shoot straight. If, the, if you had really skilled monkey wrenchers at DOE, at FERC, at these other agencies, I think we would have had a lot of our scaling be fettered much more substantially. So there, there you go for, for a few here. Okay, so will particular clean tech sectors be better positioned to take, it mo take advantage of this moment than others? And if so, why? Just uh, throw that question open to any of you. Well, I'd say maybe, I mean, you know, 
I think there are storage, solar, you know, despite some supply chain challenges, wind. Uh, I think they're all going to do well, maybe slight differences in, in both. But I do think that perhaps storage maybe a little bit more. I mean, there's chatter that there might be a, not to go too beltway, but Biden might invoke the Defense Production Act to sort of lock down the mineral supplies to, you know, scale uh, battery storage even further. So I've been thinking of that. And then if if EVs, both on the fleet as a service side and and um, uh, on the charging and uh, consumer transportation side, I, I think there's going to be a lot more activity in that. But it doesn't mean that wind and solar um, aren't uh, continuing to do well in this in this new picture. How about you, Mr. Montague? Who's going to do well? Who's going to do less well? I think in Europe, it's going to really force them to drive harder, faster after hydrogen. Hydrogen is complicated because it's not very friendly to existing pipe infrastructure and you have to retrofit the existing infrastructure or build new infrastructure. But clearly they have to wean themselves off of natural gas. And, and so hydrogen is, is, a, is one technology for that. You know, here in the U.S., I would agree with with Gil that batteries, you know, we're, we're going to go harder, faster after battery technology with the help of the DOE. That would be fantastic if we invoked the uh, Production Act. We do need to take a wartime footing on the energy transition. I've been studying the book Electrify which if, if any of our listeners haven't read that book, it's a wonderful analysis of how we can, you know, transition to electrify everything, including transportation and heating and cooling and industrial processes. But it's very clear when you look at some of the numbers in there, and this is the one number that I'd like all of us to really start to, to dwell upon, and that is that we have 800 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere now, we only need to remove 40 gigatons from the economy to net zero the economy, but there's 800 more to get from 420 ppm to 320 ppm, which is where we need to go to start backing down the cool uh, the heating process that is in place. And so that is such a massive, a massive challenge. It is greater than the challenge of defeating Hitler, in my opinion. And we need to start pouring serious percentages of our GDP, not fractions of a percent, but but perhaps 20 percent, perhaps 30 percent of our GDP into the transition. And so this is a wake up call for humanity, right, that we have to get serious. Uh, and and if it means being safer from from Russia, so be it. That's awesome. But I'm more concerned about you know, when I think of my grandchildren's world that they're inheriting, I'm much more concerned about just the the, the things that they're going to deal with besides petty tyrants like Putin. The four times I've been on here, everyone knows I'm going to talk about storage. Um, absolutely think that is where we're going. However, I thought out my answer a little bit more than that as well. And I'm really thinking that we're going to be looking at materials um, as part of the clean tech sector that is really needs to start doing um, 
doing their part in figuring out new and alternative ways to manufacture and distribute said materials that are going into these ideals and these these mandated goals. So that's that's where I'm coming from. The clean tech sector would absolutely be be materials. Um, something that shocked our industry. I think Tim would would be aware of this as well. Is LG pulling out of the uh, module manufacturing largely in part because of the lack of raw materials that they were able to get to start their manufacturing. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here already. You know, I don't disagree with anything that people have said. I got to tell you guys, you know, I, I almost want to, you know, ask you a question rather than give you an answer on this because you got <laughs> Musk out there saying two things, right? And I, I hate to invoke the, his name twice in my comments, but I, I have no choice here. One, we need to, you know, get behind nuclear. And two, we, uh, we, we need, uh, we need to have our, have energy independence in a fossil fuel capacity during this period. Like renewables can't actually take on the full mantle at the rate that we need. I mean, do we all disagree with that? I mean, is there any support for that? I really want to understand this because you know, I, I find to me, it makes sense when we're in it, we're in this clean tech world, but I would love to know what you guys think about that. So I can respond to that. I spent a year looking at at the legacy of the nuclear industry's first generation. And I saw that recent post or the recent story that all the, um, the mega yacht crowd is now getting behind nukes. We need a thousand nuclear plants. We need them now. So my question is, Hey, you all are smart people. You, you started these big tech companies. You're clearly bright people. Great. Just let's just check. See if you're suffering from smart guy disease. That's what I call the syndrome that you see a lot in Gil and I used to spend a lot of time in rooms in Washington and there's, it's a very prevalent virus in the water in this area is, is the smart guy disease virus. You, you think because you're good at something else, you're good at this. So here's the checklist for them to see if they're, they've got smart guy disease. One, fusion or fission. If we're doing fission, which most of them are, then the question is, what are you doing with the waste? And if it's like, yeah, 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 but don't worry about that. Then you got to pull them back. Then you already know they're flunking the test. Because the challenge is we've got stockpiles all over this country. We have one agreed upon national nuclear uh, waste repository, which, by the way, is built on an earthquake fault line. So, and then the question is, this stuff's got a shelf life of 10,000 years, half-life of 10,000 years. If you read any history at all, you would be severely challenged to find a society that has lasted stable and continuously for more than 2,000 years. And stable takes them all out of out of. So the question is, what are you doing with the waste? And they don't have an answer. And of course, it's put it somewhere else. It's like, no, no. So my question is, Bill Gates, if you're going to build new nuclear plants in Wyoming coal towns, are you living next to the waste? And if you're not, then shut up. That's my view. If you don't have a handle on the waste, then you just shut up. I have even a more pressing concern about nuclear. Okay. I live in the most nuclearized state in the country. We have 12 operating nuclear plants in Illinois. 50% of our grid power comes from nuclear. I'm all for keeping those existing plants running because once you build that ginormous machine, it is low carbon energy and that's an environmental good. That is helping Illinois achieve a carbon-free economy by 2045 or 2050. The problem is, Josh, that it takes at least 10 years to site and construct a nuclear power plant. And you've seen the boondoggle of the existing projects in America. There's only one plant under construction that's in Georgia. 
and it has experienced major, major overruns. And people that are way smarter than me, like Bill Nussie, the author of Freeing Energy, one of the, our fellow podcasters here, in his book, Freeing Energy, you got to check that out. He calls this out, as well as Saul Griffith, and talk about a smart guy. The dude is a freaking genius, and he's the author of that book, Electrify, okay? They both highlight this problem is that you can't build those power plants fast enough. Someday when we have the SMR technology and you're talking two megawatt power plants and it's it's a different safety scenario, okay, those are going to be great for the trip to Mars. And that's why Musk wants nuclear because on Mars, you need nuclear because the sun is more distant. And 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 so from, from a functional perspective, okay, but here on Earth, we need wind, solar, and batteries, and you can get that done much faster with that technology. Yeah, I mean, the question, answering the question is kind of different, U.S. versus, was Musk referring to the U.S. or Europe? Uh, I don't think he specified, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between like France and, and what's happening right. here. Yeah. I mean, I think I would agree with Tim's comments. Like, I mean, this, we do probably need to look at keeping nuclear on just a little bit longer as well as generating clean power while we can hopefully replace it with um, uh, firm and reliable uh, storage plus renewables. Um, I, but I think his point about, if he's talking about Europe, they're going to go into the summer, maybe won't be as painful, but they're looking at a real crunch and you can't just swap the, you can't build a bunch of heat pumps fast enough too. So they got to find gas uh, from Africa, from here. And I think we all just have to be clear eyed about that um, in mm-hmm. the near term as particularly in Germany, who made a very um, poor decision. And now in the U.S., and I think we can manage the the loss of the you know the crude that we're getting in. No one's talking about energy efficiency. I know that um, Biden can't call for that because he's Jimmy Carter all over again. But like guys, that's that's pretty important here too. I always talk about new generation. So um, it's just we're we're experiencing the price shock because it's a global commodity. So in the U.S., no, I don't I don't think we can uh, drill fast enough. But if the drillings to export more LNG to our allies in, in Europe who are in a lot of pain, you know, that may have to be part of a trade-off to get some other things we done that we need and let the markets decide. But what's really investable right now is new, is small and medium-sized nuclear reactors investable. It's a technology that's always five years away, despite all the other problems. So keep the existing stuff on, you double down on energy efficiency, speed, speed renewables. But there are some things and some sectors where uh, you, you know, you need that thermal heat. And I think that's where green hydrogen comes in later in the decade. So I think when we say electrify everything too, we, we should be a little bit more specific. There are, you know, there are military bases where a combined heat and power is a super efficient climate solution. You can electrify a ton, 80, 80 plus percent. And we got a lot of work to do there, but we're going to have to have many different forms of uh, energy supply. throughout. And Gil, to your point about the cost of energy, I mean, that's the other problem with nuclear is the cost of nuclear power is at least 3x what wind and solar are. Wind and solar are the fastest growing sources of new energy on the grid globally, not because people care about sustainability. Let's be very clear about this. This is not because of sustainability. This is because of the cost of energy that you can get from a solar array. Photons are free and super abundant. We get more than 5,000 times more photons than we could use to power all of civilization. So we're swimming in energy from wind and solar, not to mention wave and water, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of 
clean energy sources out there. Nuclear just isn't competitive. Nico? There's a lot of a lot of ground that was covered. Uh, I am not a nuclear expert and I don't play one on my podcast, so I won't try to weigh in there. The thing that I think is almost, I feel like it's almost certain to happen is uh, I'll call it a domestication of manufacturing, but bringing a lot of manufacturing back to our shores. I think that uh, when you look at LG pulling out, when you look at like, there's a lot of technology that over the last two decades, uh, all of us have seen kind of come in and go out solar panel manufacturing, for example, that some of us scratch our heads and think, why would we want to have solar panel manufacturing uh, on our shores? Uh, There are a lot of homeland security and um, sort of local market resiliency reasons for, uh, for bringing things back domestic. I I think we all have to agree. It's maybe a little ironic that now under the Biden administration, we're going to get more, perhaps more domestic manufacturing. And if we think about the clean tech sector, the thing I, the, the thing that came up for me in the, in the conversation that you all uh, had over the last few minutes is exactly what Gil said. Like the, if you look back at ARRA, like the number one place that that money was invested um, as, as a category for clean tech was not in megawatts, but megawatts, and that's energy efficiency. And that's because it's the easiest way to deploy that money into homes and help people on the ground. I think that we'll see a lot of that in Europe. We'll see a lot of homes. Right now, if you look on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram, a lot of the messaging to consumers and to the industry is, hey, we got to get serious about helping homes be more efficient so that we need less gas to heat them, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the clean tech sector that's going to do the best is going to come back to 2010. And we're going to see a lot more push for energy efficiency. We're going to see another push for government agencies to buy electric and to build uh, here uh, locally what we have otherwise procured from other countries. I do agree on principle that we're going to have to, as a comp- as an industry, sort of take a deep swallow and say, all right, we're going to we're, we're going to have to support some sort of diversification of fossil fuel production that, that helps our friends and allies not rely on uh, Russian products broadly. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to bring in small nuclear reactors. Uh, not that I'm an expert, but like, I think if, as we think about the microgrid growth that we expect to see over the next five to 10 years, there has to be a way that we incorporate, and you hear Jigger talk about this a lot, that we incorporate the, the learning from the last 50 plus years of being able to power subs, you know, 300 feet under the water to be able to power communities um, on a local resilient microgrid level. Um, so I don't think that'll be a clean tech sector that booms as a result of, uh, of the current conflict. But when it comes to our domestic capacity for producing innovative products and, and sectors, the nuclear sector, uh, along with wind and solar, uh, are you know, direct results of our military investments in our own energy security. And I don't, I expect that we're going to see local manufacturing. We're going to see huge investment from, uh, I think it's Title 17, Department of Energy Loan Program with Jigger uh, and company, investing in small uh, modular reactors. And, uh, you know, I think it does come back to individual choices by consumers are going to uh, be what drives the policy in the beltway and, and elsewhere. And the ability to improve the efficiency of the envelope of the home is going to drive companies that are not particularly sexy, uh, like Span, to have in, outsized valuations and giant um, you know, B and C and D rounds and possibly other exits. And so when we think about, I, I guess the macro question I would have, and we don't need to answer this, is when we say 
do better than others. How do we define do better? Because I really think that some of the unsexy technology is going to do really well because it's the stuff that uh, solves the most immediate problems. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey, you know what? I'd like to take a quick minute here, maybe a little self-promotion but also on behalf of my friend Sheldon Kimber and the folks over at Intersect as we partnered back in December on a podcast series all about green hydrogen. And as you and I both know, green hydrogen, well, hydrogen generally is all the rage, especially even more so now that the news has turned towards the energy and security many in the world are facing. So I'd encourage you, go listen to the Intersect CEO, Sheldon Kimber, and other experts around the world talk about how green hydrogen can be part of the solution to our climate challenges in our hydrogen series, which is available wherever you listen to Suncast. Intersect is using the historic affordability and availability of renewable energy to develop and grow the industries of tomorrow, including green hydrogen. Here our green hydrogen series at mysuncast.com forward slash hydrogen. Nico, I think what you said is it's it really brings forth Gil's point about the lack of energy efficiency conversation. I mean, you know, what if you could wave a wand and just overnight create infrastructure that would help drive the narratives that we need as a national economy from a security standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint, you would have a robust Trade Association for Energy Efficiency with the budget of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce equating energy efficiency with patriotism. Because when you think about it, I mean, this is a country, let's just step back and look at our own just daily experiences. This is a country that wastes, wastes 40% of the power that it generates. And just step back and think about that, right? I have not been, I've been, we've been in the co-working space that we've been in for almost three years. I can't even get the building engineer to turn off the televisions in the lobby before he goes home at night. So you go in there at two o'clock in the morning, CNN's blaring to no one. If you drive, if you take a, it, when I take a, a red eye and I come in in the, during the winter months in the dark from Dulles and come to my home, I'll go down a tech corridor, basically the Dulles Shore Road here in this area's tech corridor. And you're coming in at like five o'clock in the morning. Buildings are lit up like Christmas trees. And this isn't for security purposes. I'm talking about buildings that like, it's just, it's, it's completely crazy. 
you know? And I just think the shame of it is we don't have an articulate, empowered, and resourced voice to say, this is madness. And we'll know we've gotten there, Nico, I think, when we get on this pot, it, we, when we get on one of these things in, an, in August, in an August, in the years ahead, and none of us will have the experience of walking past strip malls where the doors to retail stores are just open. So the air conditioning just pours out and invites people in. Like, you know, the, the, the most gross and stupid waste of energy on the, it, that I can think of is that. So we just don't have it acculturated. Yeah. Guys, if I may jump in here for a moment, I, I, I'd like to, you know, I think it's the, the energy, you said the, the non-sexy tech, right? And so when we think about something like, you know how the, there's that, that caricature in our minds of the old dad saying, turn down, who turned up the heat, you know, with the, uh, the what do you call it, the, the, in the house, that kind of, uh, this type of technology like span, and I'm not trying to like, you know, pitch for span at the moment, but th the visibility and the understanding of your own energy is kind of a new thing, right? Even for energy geeks like us, I can say to my family, hey, there, if there's a light on, that's a phantom load. It's a parasitic load. Let's turn it off. But you know how many electric devices I have in this studio right here? Probably have 50. <laughs> I mean, so they're all running and I, I use it in the, put them on breakers and you play that game. But once again, it's not a sexy conversation. It's not a fun conversation. With something like this, it kind of changes a little bit. You get to yeah. see what you're, what you're using. Right. And one more thing, if I may real fast, I live on catchment and that means that my water supply is limited. And with climate change at the moment in my actual area that I live in in Maui, I'm always low on water. Right. So there's, an, there's systems in the water, parallels in the water world that I'm really acquainted with. Because let me tell you, folks, you run out of water and your, your day is not good. Right. Like it really you use a lot of water. OK, we as uh, Americans use about 100 gallons per person per day on average. Now, there are systems out there from the Netherlands one's called Hydroloop, which I'm very excited about. But basically it reduces it. Re, it takes this gray water recycling system and it takes like 60, 60 percent of your wasted water and puts it right back into the system. So that visibility that you can see in the water world. I mean, I, I need to think about that because if I don't, I'm not going to have water. I'm buying water. Right. And if, if you could have that kind of same visibility and electricity, I think people would become acquainted with it and could make these kinds of decisions. We just waste boatloads of stuff. We don't have to. hundred percent. All right. Let me go to um, kind of a related question. So the meme that's coming out from the Josh Holly really don't get out in the real world crowd. They're all saying that Europe's and our, the West's energy insecurities because both the EU and the US lurched into too much renewable energy too fast. That's the talking point that's emerging with varying levels of prominence and vitriol. Could I just go around and hear from you all one or two sentences? What's the best preemption or counter argument that you would offer your listeners? How about you, Tim? <laughs> Gosh, there's no, there's no one thing. Uh, you know, what I hearken back to is that Europe was in an energy crisis before the Ukraine crisis. I was visiting my relatives in Norway over Christmas, and electricity prices have spiked in Norway because they're selling a lot of hydro to Germany because Germany is getting less gas from Russia before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Okay, so there was this domino effect. And yes, it does. It is in some respects connected to Germany after the Fukushima crisis saying, we're going to shutter our nuclear plants and we're going to accelerate the transition to clean energy. So Germany is a leader globally. I'm grateful for their leadership. 
they have really stepped up to the plate and we need to model that. And we have the technology as, as our friend Jigger Shah says, let's deploy, 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 and, and let's go after it. And, and uh, it's wind, solar and storage, baby. Best counter argument or best preemption argument to the uh, it's renewables fault crowd. Nico, you're up, man. The it's renewables fault. I think, you know, I spent a lot of time over the last two weeks when I went to Sarah Week, which is the largest, they, they call it the Davos of energy. It's the, the largest kind of oil and gas conference happens every year in, in Houston. I spent a lot of time asking folks about their thoughts on this energy transition. I think, so I think there's like the narrative and the false narrative. The false narrative is coming from folks who would be uh, discussing energy security and and a diversity of energy mix um, that are really the hawks trying to protect the fossil fuel industry. And then there's the actual narrative, which are the well-meaning scientists and engineers in the energy industry broadly. And by energy, most of the world refers to energy as the fossil industry, gas, uh, petrochemicals, et cetera, who recognize that renewables is the path forward. Like I didn't talk to a single person there who would position themselves as a naysayer. Uh, they have different approaches and perspectives on what technology is, is the best. But what was eye opening for me was that general progress, even at the level of the, the head of research and development at Exxon towards a narrative that says, hey, the energy transition is happening. We're transitioning away from the way we used to do things. They won't, they won't refer to it as fossil energy. And so I think that we, the, the problem is, as always, that the media glorifies uh, whatever narrative is going to get a lot of attention. Um, and it's often from a small but powerful crowd. The conversations that I have with folks who ask me about, how, about whether renewables is really the answer uh, is, is generally pointing to the extremely intelligent uh, executives I've talked to recently off the record in the oil and gas industry who are themselves investing directly into wind and energy storage and solar at record levels. And they're looking at hydrogen and carbon capture and storage as the logical transition of their existing infrastructure, which is why carbon capture and storage and hydrogen are getting so much play from uh, broadly from the energy sector right now is because it's an elegant way to transition their existing infrastructure, as we talked about in the, in the green hydrogen series that I did last year. So it, it usually is a long conversation, not a short, quippy one when I'm talking to folks about why I think that they're, they just need to get more broad media sources. But it's hard for folks to do the primary research that, that we all do on this panel of talking to people who are making the decisions. I would just say, like, I don't, I mean, I didn't really, Josh Hawley's not a serious person. Um, I'm, thankfully, I haven't heard that creep out too much to blame renewables. It's more like drill, baby, drill versus you know, uh, green renewables, heat pumps. But I think that uh, you know, there might be a little bit of a point on Germany. There's no question. But what's the point of looking backward? We got to look forward. We got to rally for for democracy and a, and a clean energy future. And even the oil and gas majors understand that. And I think I would encourage everyone uh, to listen to the Dan Jurgen podcast with Ezra Klein. If you're like me and you want to get smart about uh global oil and gas markets, and that's not your um, day job. Uh, I think, you know, the history and the insights there is really valuable to understand. Uh, again, if you want the real answer that uh, um, 
our, our reliance on petrostates was has been lessened in part because we because of fracking uh, coming online in a big way from 08 to 12. Uh, and it's just the reliance with Russia is because we don't have that type of crude that goes into our refineries to make gas. So um, that's that's just not it's poppycock. I don't have the pithy response, but I would just tell everyone to listen to Dan Jurgen's podcast if you uh, want to understand the truth behind how energy markets work and what the U.S. is doing versus Europe. And real quick, you know, uh, Gil, the fracking industry really helped us segue away from coal. We got cheap gas and and we converted a bunch of coal plants to gas, which is half the footprint of what coal is from a carbon perspective. So that was actually a good thing for the energy transition. Josh and Marie, equipping your um, listeners with the best retort <laughs> when they say it's all renewables fault. There's not much to, to add to that. I really don't take it very seriously. When I think about Germany, I find a lot of what's happened there inspiring. And it's kind of like we have this whole global energy transition in part because of that those early steps. So I don't I don't put a lot of stock in it, the criticism period. Mike, what we need, though, is uh, I've been thinking a lot about where's our patriotic um, calls to action or bumper stickers. I had one of those shower idea moments and thinking about EVs. And I was like. How can we reclaim this patriotism? And because we have a good story to, I couldn't really come up with any like charge up America or <laughs> kick, kick gas America. You know, just kind of embrace that. Anyways, I welcome ideas. Uh, you can you can email me because I think I'd love to see those on the bumper stickers of the Ford Electric 150 Lightnings this summer. Uh, if you can get one, um, we can reclaim this. This is not only fighting climate change, but it's it's good for your country and and protecting democracy and avoiding Putin hates this truck. Ask me why. <laughs> good. All right. Well, let's brainstorm after this. All right. All right. I'm Marie, gonna get these produced. Marie, last word on this question. I mean, there's a lot of good answers here. Um, most of all, it's I mean, everything's so cyclical and we're moving in the direction of renewables. So whether they like it or not, it is what it is. <laughs> That is the path that we're going down. Got it. All right. Outside the war in Ukraine, just want to do a lightning round here. What are the trends that you are seeing emerge outside of Ukraine? Tim, a trend you are a trend or development you're noticing? A lot of talk about carbon capture and this is a total double edge. As I pointed out earlier, we have a huge amount of carbon in the atmosphere that we need to suck out. That takes a lot of energy and there's, there's a, a phenomenon called direct air capture, and then you put it down in the ground and make sure it turns to stone. That's the key is, is putting it down in, in a place that is appropriate for that where it will turn to stone. The flip side of that is that the oil industry wants to use this as a, oh, we're going carbon-free, we're going green. But what they really want to do is put carbon down in the ground to increase the flow of oil out of the ground. And that's not a good thing. They're also planning 60,000 miles of carbon pipelines, CO2 pipelines, to my home state of Illinois, many of them, to put liquid carbon down in the ground, liquid CO2. And this is a major hazard to human health because when the pipe bursts, you then have this bubble of CO2 sitting over you that is scentless 
and sightless. It's clear. You cannot smell it. You cannot see it. And it's extremely dangerous. Tim, with their track record, I can't imagine why you're being such a pessimist, but we'll move <laughs> on here. All right. Josh Porter, a trend you are seeing. Uh, oh, how about wind? Right. So we did a show with Vineyard Wind off of uh, uh, Cuddy Hunk and Martha's Vineyard. And there they got those Halliot X's going in. There's some new leases, I think, that have just been awarded. And there's multi-billion dollar leases in the New York area. Right. Uh, and then, of course, out here in Hawaii, I saw in Honolulu Civil Beat just maybe last week in the legislature, they're debating offshore wind for the island of Oahu. So uh, I think that's an interesting trend. I, I find that exciting out here in Hawaii. It's not an easy thing to mess around with what's called the Ahu which is that atop of the uh, edge of the of the of the of the the mountains all the way down that full intact ecosystem to the um, to the reef line and actually out there probably they're, they're trying to debate at the legislature right now how far out these wind turbines might need to be can we go with anchored or do we need to be thinking about floating uh, as and maybe even being a pl- an environment that pioneers floating so um, yeah I think big winds pretty uh, interesting trends that are happening at the moment Gil top trend you're seeing well, I'd echo the the offshore. I mean, the eye popping um, auction uh, maybe a couple months ago, four and a half billion. I think there's going to be six more offshore leases by 2024. That's very exciting, encouraging. But you know, one um, thing we're hearing a lot of and uh, is exciting, and and just a little dose of optimism is what's happening with these um, electric school bus fleet as a service conversions, um, companies like Highland and others, I'm seeing a lot of activity in that area. And it's notionally this, you know, you've got cost parative now with these old, uh, inefficient diesel buses. And, uh, I want to see more and more, um, bus depots with charging stations and powered by electrics. It's kind of a inspiring, um, iconic way to, point out the energy transition in our communities. So I'm, I'm getting into electric school buses with the big fan. All right, Nico, top trend. I've got an episode coming up this Thursday that I'll shout out. It's with our friend Jigger. And uh, I think in that episode, he talks about something that he hasn't talked about up to now. And it's a trend that I'm seeing elsewise, which is why I talked to him and asked him a question around the loan office support of it. And that is the virtual power plants are, especially as we see the attachment rate of storage in places like Puerto Rico, a hundred percent, but in places like Texas and California and Hawaii at astronomical rates now uh, compared with the past virtual power plants are uh, a real answer to congestion on the grid. They're a real answer to uh, improving the distributed load uh, to reducing the overall expense on uh, transmission and redirecting that expense or that investment. So that trend of virtual power plant models, I think we're also going to see as Jigger talks about agencies like the loan, pro- loan programs office investing in uh, the solar industry leading that that charge as opposed to necessarily broadly the storage industry or or the demand response industry. Um, so I think that VPPs are a trend that we're going to hear more about in the coming, certainly in the coming week, if not in the coming <laughs> months and years. All right, Marie, the last word on this question. Yeah, so the trends that I've been definitely seeing um, pass along my radar are just more of the alternatives to lithium ion storage. So all sorts of either niche inventions, you know, using zinc or sodium sulfur or hydrogen, or, you know, there's big actual manufacturers looking to move forward with sodium sulfur. Um, So there's just been a lot of talk 
of moving away from the lithium ion raw materials and looking into other alternatives. All right, our last five minutes, just like another night lightning round here. Is there a company or a company leader that or who has impressed you in particular in the last three months? Anybody? I'll go first. Last week, Solar Lead Factory announced they had been acquired by Enphase. They're one of, I mean, I'll call a shit ton. Like it's a, it's a ridiculous <laughs> number of companies that have been acquired yeah. by Enphase in the last year. The last quarter uh, alone has been tremendous from uh, electric vehicle charging to lead generation to uh, last year with um, with a design firm uh, that, that I think Enphase is, uh, has, I know that they've hired leadership away from Apple. Uh, they really are focused on being a consumer tech company that uh, the likes of Tesla, they don't see themselves competing with SMA. They, they see themselves competing with companies like Tesla and GE. And they are really impressive and they are on a roll. And uh, I don't think anybody has delivered better return on equity investment from two years ago to now than the leadership at Enphase in our industry. All right. Gil Jenkins, company or leader? I mean, this is going to sound a bit flippant, but and I've talked a lot about EVs, but um, I think we're going to do a couple EV episodes coming up and uh, want to do an EV charging episode. And uh, I've been tracking what Volta is doing. Uh, Josh, you probably have them out there in uh, Hawaii a lot. I love the model of advertising, but I noticed um, this week on their on their social, they have they put something on their charging stations that. Um, made me laugh and want to interview the, the CEO more. It says, uh, when they go high, we st stay low and they show the average price of gas and how much it takes to charge. So Volta charging, that that's one that comes to mind. But there, there are just so many. It's amazing how many uh, companies are coming into this space and, and maturing or fighting hard. I mean, it's quite hard to keep up with this latest wave of climate tech, uh, maybe the third or fourth uh, it's just some amazing companies coming out and, and green, more green giants like Enphase doing incredible work too. Marie, a company or a leader that caught your attention in the last three months? Yeah, um, much like Tim, uh, my day-to-day -day is in Illinois um, with our company, Journey Solar, that works with the entire Midwest. And I there is a big shout out for a lot of municipality leaders um, mayors, city administrators, really starting to begin the conversation, if not release actual actions to um, have their building and municipal facilities uh, take part in renewable energy. And so it's just been a huge influx of more interest and more implementation of renewable energy. And it's because of these leaders going out there and, and seeking further information. All right, Tim and Josh, we got uh, two minutes before we lose Tim, and uh, we'll put a wrap on this company or leader that jumped out to you in the last three months. Go ahead, Josh. All right, so uh, I will say that uh, I agree with you all about Enphase, and then tomorrow I'll drop an hour-long discussion with Ragu uh, and the co-founder co and chief product officer of Enphase. Uh, he will mention the uh, words fuel cell in that interview. And it was, uh, yeah, it was the fourth time he's been on the solar coaster. Absolutely love talking with him. So that was amazing. Uh, but there's, there's so many other ones, uh, span. I want to follow up after we actually do the install and talk to, uh, 
Rao, I think is his name. And then, uh, of course, uh, we're going to have, uh, and I saw, yeah, Jing and Nico, I saw your podcast, fantastic. And then we're, um, we have Hawaii Energy Conference coming up on 510 and 512. We have a VIP cocktail party out here that we're running. And all the local leaders, people like David Bissell, the CEO of Kauai Island Utility Cooperative, just got his green light on pump storage hydro. We did a show with him. We're going to be following up with guys like that. The leaders at the uh, at HEI, Hawaiian Electric Industries, uh, the leaders out here deploying billions of dollars in solar plus storage storage uh, to get our islands to 100% renewables uh, in record time. So, I mean, there's just, who, I want to talk to you all. I can't wait. All right, Tim, last word. Company or leader that impressed you? Well, I I want to second the shout outs to Enphase. It is amazing to see that company just rising to the top and being so innovative. So that's, that's awesome. And please, uh, I need an introduction to a senior executive there. Um, I want to highlight two companies, though, and Elon Musk deserves the most credit of any of our living business leaders because he is not only going after electrification of transportation, the Berlin factory just opened. Okay, let's celebrate that. That's half a million cars a year directly being made in Europe. Uh, He's putting $100 million into the XPRIZE for carbon capture technology. All of the billionaires on earth should be doing exactly that. And there are dozens of them. Uh, so, and then I'm just a huge fan of Climeworks, which is a Swiss company that is doing direct air capture in, and they have a pilot project, uh, coolly named Orca in Iceland. So just Google that Orca direct air capture in Iceland. All right. With that, we're going to put a wrap on the fourth Clean Tech Podcasters Roundtable. I want to thank our participants. Thank everybody who uh, listened in. Really appreciate it, and uh, we're going to be trying to reconstitute this in or in or around San Antonio for um, clean power. So stay tuned. We'll be back to all of you with uh, an update on that. Podcasters, thank you so so much. Great to see you again, Gil. Thanks for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Nice to be with y'all. Thanks everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank Bye you. Now. Thanks, Aloha, guys. All right, Solar Warrior, Will. That's a wrap on the quarterly roundtable. I hope that you enjoyed it. I'd love to know what insights you gleaned that surprised you or informed you, maybe even angered you. Feel free, reach out on LinkedIn. Let us know what your insights are. I know that Mike and the rest of the gang would love to hear how this resonates with you and if you'd love to hear more of these. We, of course, are gonna do them every quarter anyway with you, whether you're looking for them or not because we think they're fun and insightful. If you haven't followed these other podcasts, I would encourage you to do so. A hat tip as well to our friend Mike Casey for launching his new podcast, Scale and Clean, in Q1. He's now got, I think, four or five episodes out, and they are really, really good. I'd encourage you to go check those out. But everyone mentioned their podcast in the show. I hope you'll go subscribe to them. Of course, the links are on our website. And if you're eager to keep learning, well, you can head on over to mysuncast.com, click on the episodes link, and that'll take you to this and all the other 450 plus episodes of Suncast. You can get the social media links for each of our guests, as well as some of the articles and recommendations that they made from today's episode. Tune back in next week as we will have a brief morsel of insight on our Tactical Tuesday, as well as a deep dive executive profile on Thursday, back to our long form episodes. And I'd like finally to thank once again, our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about our sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn ways that you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.